time, if the children haven't already been dismissed, uh, they can go down to Junior Church. There's a couple of programs going on down there. And so uh, for our children and young people, have a blessed time, and we appreciate the staff that serves our children downstairs. So uh, go in God's blessings. I'm going to read you a short story, a very short story, and then I'm going to ask you four questions. So you have a heads up. As you listen to this story, I will ask you four questions. It's a simple story, and uh, here is the story. Quote, a little girl named Mary goes to the beach with her mother and her brother. They drive there in a red car, and at the beach they swim, they eat some ice cream, they play in the sand, and they have sandwiches for lunch. The end. All right. Uh, there's four questions. The first one is, is what color was the car? Yeah. Ah, very good. Okay. Did they have, second question is, did they have fish and chips for lunch? What did they have? Sandwiches. Okay, good. Third, did they listen to music in the car? We have a no and we have an I don't know. Okay. Number four, did they drink lemonade with lunch? There's some no's and I don't know. Uh, there was a book written by uh, two uh, sociologists named Stephen Levitt and uh, Stephen J. Dubner. And uh, their book is entitled Think Like a Freak. And they're economists, excuse me, not sociologists, economists. And uh, they write that the hardest three words in the English language to say are I love you. And yet they dispute that. They say the hardest three words in the English language for us Americans to say is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And uh, so they did a little research here. And what they did is they took a bunch of kindergarten children, young, you know, kindergartners, and they were given the same quiz, the same story, the same questions. And nearly all the children got the first two questions right. You know, the color of the car, red, and did they have fish and chips? No, they got those two right. But with the second or the last two questions, number three and number four, they did much worse on that. Uh, the questions basically are unanswerable. For those of you who said, I don't know, you're right, because there wasn't enough information in the story to know whether or not they listened to music or had lemonade. Uh, but a whopping 76% of those children in kindergarten answered these questions either absolutely yes or no. And uh, so in their book, Think Like a Freak, they say that uh, the kids who tried to bluff their way through the uh, test, if you will, or this simple exam, are right on tack, a track for careers in business and politics, <laughs> where almost nobody admits the, to say, or nobody admits that they know, don't know everything. And uh, for until you admit that you don't know something, uh, it's likely impossible that you will learn something new in that. Uh, for those of us of a certain age, I think if we're honest with ourselves and with one another, we admit the more we know, the less we know. Uh, there's a sense about that when we're dealing especially with God's Word. Even though it is a finite book, there's only a certain number of finite words in this book, a number of pages, yet it is an infinite book and worthy of a lifetime of reading and study as we know. So how do we measure the Christian growth? How do we measure the spiritual life? Uh, in, this in this session, we are going to look at one of the qualities that Peter lists for us here 
in this letter of Second Peter, the passage that Wes read for us. We are camping here because I believe it is very important that we understand each one of these eight qualities that Peter lays out for us. And it is a measurement, a yardstick, if you will, of the spiritual life. It's one of many lists of virtues in the New Testament, and yet we will spend some time there today. So what is the measurement of spiritual life? How do we know if we're on track? Well, there are two extremes in Christianity. The first one is called quietism. It's called a deeper life teaching. I don't know if you've been exposed to that at all, but in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15, they would use this as a motto. A quietist would use this where it is written, the battle is not yours but God's. And that is a great statement, but put into context is very important. But quietists believe that the way to live the Christian life is through passive surrender rather than self-discipline. Their concept of Christian living is reflected in the popular cliches, let go and let God. You may have heard that one. Or, I can't, but he can. Instead of struggling and striving, they say believers must surrender, taking no active role in the sanctification process. And so that is one extreme of the Christian life, is the the extreme of quietism. On the other side of the spectrum is what we call pietism, and that's the other end. And the pietists emphasize self-discipline and holy living, living often to the extreme of adopting legalistic standards for living. Pietism places so much emphasis on external righteousness and human effort that it ignores God's role in sanctification. Remember what sanctification is. It is the process God has us in. Once you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life, you are justified or declared righteous. It's a moment in time, and we look forward to when we are translated to heaven, however that occurs, whether through our physical death or through the uh, catching away of believers, the church at the rapture, when we see him face-to-face called glorification, that's uh, where we will be, and that is an act of God. But this part in between, what we live out, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're breathing here today, then you are in the sanctification process. And God is working in us and through us. And so quietism or pietism, Uh, does not answer the question of how do we live out the Christian life. Is there a middle ground somewhere between these two extremes? And I think Peter lays it out for us very clearly here in the early part of chapter 1. I believe there is a balance. There is middle ground. There is what is more a biblical or correct viewpoint of the Christian life. We depend on God for his energy, his power, his resources, but yet that requires our commitment and <clears throat> excuse me, and our self-control. And exactly what Peter is talking about here, this middle ground between God's effort and our effort, God's provision and our process here is taught throughout Scripture. Here we see that Peter is written in chapters 1, verses 3 and 4, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He has given us everything. So we don't need to pray for power. We need more accurately to pray to appropriate the power that God has given to us. He has given all these things, his provision to live out the Christian life. But later he goes on to say in verses 5 through 7, the passage we are focusing on during these weeks and these qualities, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. 
so that is the middle ground. We have this. It's kind of a tension, isn't it? God's sovereignty, God's power, and our responsibility and our self-control and our uh, cooperating with God, what God is doing in our lives. And that's why it is so important, these eight qualities in verses 5 through 7, that we understand each word, each quality, that we understand what we are called upon to do because the, the imperative verb is that verb supply or add to your faith. He's talking to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our faith, our personal commitment, our personal response to God's offer of salvation is to grow. It is a growing process. And we find this same balance or the middle ground evident in uh, the Apostle Paul in Philippians where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that seems to trip some people up a lot, but then it is added Paul adds, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. Colossians 1.29, Paul says, I labor, striving according to the power which mightily works in me. Both God and the believer co-joined, working together. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, to comfort us. And the Bible teaches that we grow by obedience. That is the spiritual life. We're growing by obedience. Here in this passage in 2 Peter, we are to supply these things, even though God has already given us all things, all power to live lives of godliness each day. And that includes our ability to endure hardship, to fight the good fight, to stand firm in the battle, fulfilling uh, that duty that's not burdensome because God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, Ephesians 3. Here in this passage, if you look again back at verse 5, now for this reason also applying all diligence in your faith supply, or some of your translations, versions have add. And that is the imperative or the command in this passage, which all of these eight qualities uh, flow out of, or the next seven flow out of this issue of of the command. And it's an interesting word that is used here. Uh, In ancient Greece, it was a theatrical term that was used of uh, benefactors in the theater. Uh, the theater would put on a big production, but there would be a benefactor who would fund the production. He would supply all that was needed for this theater. In fact, from this Greek word, we get the word chorus and choreography from this very same word. And uh, so it was someone who would provide very generously to the city to put on this play or this uh, chorus that was going on and it was about a very generous giver one who would supply it and so we're called upon to cooperate with God in working through this God provides the price in fact down in verse 11 if you look quickly at verse 11 it says at the end of that for in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you same word that we get our word chorus or choreographer, but it's really pointing to the generous giver, and that points to God himself. And so Second Peter, remember, is breaks down into four parts. He's talking in chapter 1 about our nature and about the work of God in our lives. And then in the end of chapter 1, the believers nurture the word of God, the importance of the word of God. 
And then in all of chapter 2, he's talking about the believer's nemesis or the warfare that false teachers are placing upon the church. We need to be aware of that. And verse 4, or in the fourth section is chapter 3, our hope, the believer's hope, and that's the return of Christ. Peter gives us here in verses 5 through 7, chapter 1, this list of virtues, really, or qualities. And uh, these are commonly found in Scripture. We can find one in Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Colossians 3, and so on. There are these virtue lists is what they're called. And so we think about the Christian life. And if it's life, it should be growing. We rejoice in the growth of babies, don't we? Uh, we look, we have a one-year-old granddaughter and a three-year-old, and it's been great to be close enough to watch them grow. And, of course, with technology, with Instagram and all the stuff, we can get pictures every day, and we see the changes. They are growing, and we rejoice in that. And for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, this spiritual growth is a lifetime process. Hopefully you all are further along the Christian path than you were five years ago or ten years ago or thirty years ago that you are growing in your faith and that you cling to the fundamentals of the faith, and yet you are growing in the truth of God's word. But spiritual growth is not automatic. We're not like the quietists who just sit back in the rocking chair and say, okay, God, if you want it done, I guess you're going to do it. Uh, you know, that's, that's a wrong emphasis on our responsibility. It requires cooperation and diligence, spiritual diligence and discipline uh, to cooperate with God. So in this verse, we have already looked at the quality of faith, the quality of moral excellence, and today we're looking at the imperative quality of knowledge, of knowledge. And, uh, you know, the world seeks after knowledge because we've been told that knowledge is power, and uh, we see that through the Internet, through technology, that uh, people who are in the know have something over people who don't know. And, uh, in fact, uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talked about Christians using our minds. He wrote these words, and I quote C.S. Lewis, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other slackers. If you, are a, if you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you that you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all, unquote. He just put it right where it was. And, of course, Christians have been accused over the decades, probably centuries, of checking our brains at the door, that we're not thinking people. And we, of all people, should be people who are continually on the quest for knowledge. But the question remains, do we know a lot about God or do we know God? Do we know a lot about Jesus Christ or do we know Jesus Christ? Here in First Peter, when you look at this word, the word knowledge there after moral excellence, uh, he has changed the form of the Greek word. Up above, he talks about our knowledge of God in verses 2 through 3, and that is a saving knowledge. That is a once-for-all act knowledge where we receive Christ's offer of salvation. There's a prefix on that Greek word, which means that it is complete. It is, it is settled. That's the kind of knowledge of salvation. That's why we can have assurance when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are assured of eternal life because this is the type of knowledge that, is, that you have exercised. But, uh, <clears throat> but in this, uh, below in, in verses 5 through 7, that knowledge there has dropped the prefix and it actually talks about a growing knowledge, a growing knowledge. Actually, the Greek said two words for knowledge 
One was oida, and the other one was gnosko. And I don't want to bore you with Greek stuff, but it meant oida. The first one meant seeing, denotes perception, absolute kind of knowledge. Once something is known, it is known for good. Uh, the other one, gnosko, denotes inceptive, ongoing knowledge. It designates ongoing, ongoing personal knowledge or growth. It implies a relationship between the person who knows and the person who is known. It can only grow and mature. Uh, by way of illustration, think about this. You can know oida, somebody's name, but uh, you know it immediately, but it will take a lifetime to really know, gnosko, that person. It's a growing relationship. Any of you who are married understand that, that uh, you're always learning something new about your spouse. Okay, that's a growing gnosko type of knowledge. Uh, this kind of knowledge comes from reading, from thinking, from discussing with other Christians, from uh, coming and uh, listening to a sermon, to being involved in Bible study, to have a hunger and a desire to know more about Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of knowledge Peter is telling us to supply to our moral excellence, to our faith. Uh, the 19th century Scottish preacher's name was John Brown, and he wrote a commentary about this passage. And in his chapter on this, he said that this knowledge means making a distinction not only between, between what is true and what is false, but also between what is right and wrong, what is becoming and unbecoming, what is advantageous and what is hurtful. hurtful. Uh, when we get to chapter 2, you will see a correlation to the false teachers in opposites. The false teachers of chapter 2 claim to have a newer knowledge offering freedom, but Peter says it is based on stories that they have made up and empty, boastful words. Chapter 2, verse 3 and verse 18. They appear highly intelligent and intellectually respectable. But nothing here says that we as Christians automatically have high intelligence. In fact, I often tell people I am educated beyond my intelligence. Uh, and yet God is very gracious. And there are, he, he's not saying these false teachers are idiots in the sense that they have this intellectual acumen. Peter does believe, though, that even the most intellectually feeble Christians have knowledge, but that the intellectually gifted heretics blaspheme in matters they do not understand, chapter 2, verse 12. So the connection between practical Christian living and developing knowledge is referred to again in verse 8 down there. Look at verse 8 with me. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's an important aspect of growing in our knowledge of who God is and knowing God. The knowledge of Jesus Christ, the compelling one. This is the most compelling figure in all of history is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would we not want to know more about him? He is a compelling figure. There are some basic issues about our understanding and our experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, which arises from a personal relationship, which goes back to the faith issue, the faith quality. First of all, Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God. You may, if you're taking notes, you may want to just jot down these references because we're going to go to a number of different uh, references, books of the Bible 
uh, just to, to show you as a demonstration, because there are many verses which demonstrate all of these points. But first of all, our, no- our knowledge of Jesus Christ should be growing because he is the supreme revelation of God. When you think of God, one of his characteristics is he is infinite. He has no beginning, no end. Everything he does is in infinity. And we as human beings, at least I do, my brain kind of fizzles when I try to imagine what is infinite. And we have a number of illustrations like uh, the light, your distance to stars and that kind of thing. But yet we should want to know more, even though we know we will not capture absolutely every truth. Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God. In John 14, 6 through 10 Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Jesus Christ was the visible representation of God the Father. And he told told us there, and, and Philip told him there in that passage, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus responded, how long have I been with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. Secondly, knowledge of Jesus Christ is acquired through personal relationship with him. This is the difference between knowing about Jesus Christ and knowing Jesus Christ. John 4.42, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. This was the follow-up of the, the Samaritan woman meeting Jesus at the well. She went into her village and testified that this was the Messiah. And now those who came and they testified that they believe not only because of her testimony, but they have seen and they have heard and they believe that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. So knowledge is acquired through personal relationship with him. Thirdly, knowledge of Jesus Christ is acquired through the work of the Holy Spirit. When we are trying to understand and know infinity and know divine uh, person, it's only done through the Holy Spirit, John fifteen twenty six. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. One of the Holy Spirit's roles is to point to Jesus Christ, to point to the one who is the object of our faith. Fourthly, knowledge of Jesus Christ is associated with knowing God, John seventeen twenty six. Jesus said, I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. The great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ, talking about knowledge there. Finally, knowledge of Jesus Christ should increase consistently. 2 Peter 3.18, here in the book we are studying. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. So Jesus Christ's knowledge of him is, uh, there's a lot of the things we can learn about our Lord and Savior, this compelling one in all of history. So what are some of the consequences of our knowledge? What are some of the consequences? First of all, reconciliation with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God is reconciling us unto himself. So reconciliation is a consequence of knowing Christ. Access to God, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace, which we stand, and we exult in the hope and the glory of God. And in becoming like Jesus Christ, in the sanctification process, he is making us more and more like Christ. Philippians 3.10 Paul writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. One of the other consequences of knowing Jesus Christ is peace. John 14, 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulations, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Another consequence is hope, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that your eyes may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling or the riches of glory and his inheritance in the saints. We have eternal life. That's a consequence of knowing Jesus Christ. John 17, 3, that this is eternal life, that you may know that. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We are renewed in our spirits and souls, Ephesians 4, 19 through 22. Uh, says, if you have heard him, been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. So we are renewed, not only reconciled, but renewed. We have unity with other believers, John 17, 21 that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. We also, one of the consequences of knowing Jesus Christ is rejection by the world. John fifteen eighteen through 21. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And he goes on to explain that there. Then also knowledge of Jesus Christ is manifest is to manifest itself in obedience. That's how we know that we know Christ, as we obey his word. 1 John chapter 2, 3-6. through 6. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If you grew up in a more liturgical church and as a child went to catechism, that was the common experience 200 years ago of children in our country and in Europe, obviously, Uh, but they would uh, memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it was expected at that time that children would learn and memorize the Shorter Catechism, and it was expected that adults would be able to recite that. Well, we have long passed by those days. But yet the fourth question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this, what is God? How would you answer that? What is God? The answer reads, the correct answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The great Charles Hodge, who was a a commentator and a preacher from another century, described the answer this way. It's probably the best definition of God 
ever penned by man. So the question comes back, do you just know about God? Do you just know about Jesus? Or do you know Jesus Christ? How do we know if we're growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? J.I. Packer gives us four indicators. I just want to just briefly touch on those. If you've read the book, Knowing God, he has a portion in there where you can expand upon these. But the four propositions that he gives us for evidences that you know God are these. The first one is those who know God have great energy for God. He uses Daniel of the Old Testament as an example in Daniel 11.32, where it says, The people who know their God will display strength and take action. Of course, Daniel lived in a very pagan culture. He served his God under great persecution and great trouble, and yet he took action. He was firm and he had resolve. He had great energy for God. How do you measure your energy for God? And it all goes back to prayer. If you go back to Daniel and study Daniel, it is Daniel's prayer. And it all is birthed out of prayer and communication with God. Secondly, how do we know that we are growing in knowledge? Those who know God have great thoughts of God. Again, in Daniel, Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Daniel 2, 20 through 22. Those who know God have great thoughts about God. The danger for all of us is we keep shrinking God into a smaller and smaller package. We put God in the box instead of recognizing this all-powerful God that no nation, no political movement, no terrorists, no persecutors will ever destroy what God is doing. Number three, those who know God show great boldness for God. In uh, the book of Acts, Peter and the apostles, after being arrested and threatened, they said, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, in Later on in Acts, I do not consider my life uh, of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So there is a holy boldness. There is a great boldness when we are growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, those who know God have great contentment in God. Notice it's not the word comfort, but contentment. There is a difference. We may live a very comfortable lifestyle and yet be very discontent. Or we may have a very rough lifestyle, as many believers around the world do, and yet be t t totally contented. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that is contentment with God. So those four things are a little bit of a measurement of if you're growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said before, most of us focus upon uh, the things in our background, the things in our history, the things that we're dealing with that are negative and troubling to us. Uh, I think Packer calls them our losses and our crosses. And yet he says all those things should point us to the gifts of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are thankful and growing in him. Remember the four things. Remember that your character should always be stronger than your circumstances. And how do we have character? By knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, remember your struggles always lead to strength. 
that you are growing through those when you recognize that God is with you, empowering you to live through what you face. Thirdly, remember that God's timing is always perfect. In his sovereignty and his power, he is never too late or never too early. And remember that God will never leave your side. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And then in closing, I think we can say with Habakkuk, that prophet out of the Old Testament in chapter 3 of the book, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit of the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that you call us to know you, not just know about you. Lord, uh, keep us from just accumulating intellectual things. Lord, as important as our thinking through and growing in our intellect is, may we not substitute that for a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and a growing knowledge in relationship, and intimate relationship with you. We thank you for the Apostle Peter, and Lord, for his growth through his life. And thank you that he wrote this letter and that we are recipients of it down through the centuries and across oceans and cultures. And thank you, Lord, that you are ever faithful in teaching us in the truth and leading and guiding us in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.